Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, coming up uh, following the news, we are going to revisit a conversation with Jody Bird uh, from March. Jody Bird is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, associate professor of English and Gender Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And uh, we talk in this discussion about her uh, talk she was giving in March uh, for the USU College of Humanities Tanner Talk series called Digital Animus in the Age of Liberation. She examines uh, the video game Assassin's Creed III Liberation to explore how this media illuminates the complex dynamics of empire, settler colonialism, and indigenous dispossession. And we talk a bit about the coronavirus, which uh, at that time in March was just beginning to hit the U.S. and including Utah. And it's interesting to go back about three months and take a look at those things. Following the news.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to uh, reach back in the archives. Not too far, about uh, three months or so, mid-March, I believe, is when this was first broadcast. A discussion with Jody Bird and uh, her lecture at that point in the USU College of Humanities uh, Tanner Talk series called Digital Animus in the Age of Liberation. Uh, coronavirus was just uh, getting ramped up in the U.S., uh, including here in Utah, and uh, restrictions were being uh, uh, placed. And uh, Jody Bird's talk was being changed at that point from in-person to remote, uh, and then events for, you know, from pretty much for the next day forward were uh, were all canceled, and, and of course to this to this date. Uh, we do discuss uh, coronavirus. Interesting to go back three months or so to the very beginning here uh, in the U.S. and hear a little bit of that discussion. And an interesting discussion um, about uh, Native American issues and, and other issues. So here is uh, my discussion with Jody Bird from March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jody Bird joins me this morning to discuss the next lecture in the USU College of Humanities Tanner Talk series. It's titled Digital Animus in the Age of Liberation. Jody A. Bird is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, an associate professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she works on critical indigenous studies, queer indigenous studies, and critical technology studies. Her talk will examine the video game Assassin's Creed III, Liberation, to explore how this media illuminates the complex dynamics of empire, settler, colonialism, and indigenous dispossession. Jody Bird, uh, as we mentioned, uh, uh, teaches at uh, University of Illinois. Uh, she's also there on the faculty affiliate for the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. Uh, Jody Bird, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so glad to get to be here. Um, and uh, you'll be giving your uh, your talk remotely. I, I was going to say, yeah. as with all things uh, <laughs> the, uh, in, in these times, I want to start with coronavirus. Um, seems fair. like all all roads lead to coronavirus. Uh, here, it, it's really affecting things. That NBA just suspended its season. Um, a Utah Jazz player uh, was just uh, announced has uh, you know has has the virus. Um, Tom Hanks and his wife <laughs> have a coronavirus. The uh, list goes on and on, including your your talk. You'll be doing this remotely because of the virus. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, Maddie Burkett set it, set it all up for me. Um, I think I knew Sunday that traveling might, um, get, like, we might see stuff start to un- um, slow down um, this week. So we were ahead of the curve, and she's done an incredible job to get stuff set up for me today. Um, so I'm really grateful that I get to do remote to be sort of a test case on this. Um, you know, at, at Illinois, we've only just got the word last night that we're shifting to um, remote teaching. So we're all all faculty and graduate students are taking crash courses in how to do Zoom teaching um, and trying to figure out what that's going to mean for students here. And yeah, I think that's happening at a lot of other institutions around the country. Yeah, certainly. So th- this was pretty recent, I guess, uh, University of Illinois to go into online. Yeah, last night was the, the the official word. They they gave us signals earlier in the week um, to prepare, and then they they made the decision last night. Um, so I, I understand uh, earlier Stanford went went there. Many other universities. Um, yeah, Columbia University. I think Harvard. Um, a lot of a lot of institutions are doing this. Uh, abundance you, of caution, ab- right? Abundance of caution. Yeah, and I think the I think the idea is my understanding is you. 
you want to limit, you know, you want to do social distancing in the hopes to, of flattening right. the curve, as as they say, with of the of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so, I've seen that. so let's let's hope that we can do that. Uh, let me uh, give a little bit of information from Utah State University. Here's a little sure. bit from President Cockett's uh, email to all employees from just yesterday. Uh, on COVID-19. So they've, uh, they have um, canceled all university events and events on campus beginning today. The Tanner talk got special permission. Professor Berker got special permission. I'll give some details on that because the attendance is expected to be uh, somewhat smaller sort of classroom-like uh, for your remote presentations. Um, so I'll give some details uh, going forward. All university-related travel, whether domestic or international, must be canceled uh, at USU. Um, and prevention, uh, we're all encouraged, well, nationwide, worldwide, to follow best practices. Uh, you know, wash our hands, uh, don't sneeze on each other, uh, you know, avoid shaking hands, that, that sort of thing. I imagine similar things are going out at University of Illinois. Oh, yeah, it, we, yeah, they've shut down travel um, until further notice, actually. Um, it, domestic and international, um, it's unclear if that's just flights or if people aren't supposed to drive anywhere either. So, well, I think it's all kind of a every day is, an, is a new um, update. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, you, you <laughs> I was reading your Twitter feed. Um, no. <laughs> you're, you're, you mentioned that Illinois just shifted all classes to remote, and you say, here I'll just say that maintaining an LDR in the unforgiving climate of academia uh, is brutal, you say. Yeah, yeah. Um, a long-distance relationship? Uh, yeah. You're right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so just looking at the you know constraints of, of what seemed functional and, and doable um, just even a month ago, uh, transforms um, as everything shuts down. Though I will say that, you know, having been in a long-distance relationship now for two and a half years, um, there's a lot of strategies for how to do stuff remotely. So in some ways, um, I feel like I'm ahead of the curve on that, too, about, you know, what, things that can be done to connect um, across distances. And so, a lot of it's, you know, using um, technologies and computers, uh, Skype, um, FaceTime, um, uh, Netflix, lots of synchronized and uh, viewing, messaging each other. So, you know, I think there's strategies that we have at this point. And it's partly why I think, um, you know, thinking about video games and social media and technology is really important because I feel like we're about to shift into um, even heavier reliance. And there's a lot of questions that come with what these technologies are both enabling um, around um, racism and settler colonialism, but how they're also kind of um, reshaping our notion of what sociality can be. I wonder if you talk a little more about that. That's interesting because we're all, at least for a while, we're all going to be shifting into sort of remote relationships. Uh, you know, that, that's yeah. the, you know, and yeah. you're you're an early adopter. You're kind of trying to maintain this long distance <laughs> relationship with technology. Right. Uh, talk to me a little bit, a bit more about it. It, it it's a double edged sword, isn't it? The technology. Um, yes, I mean, there's a lot of research in the in where I'm at with critical technology studies, just thinking about what we kind of give ourselves over to, um, you know, looking at what search algorithms produce in terms of racism, how, um, you know, the rise of, of Internet hate can be attributed to the actual platforms and the tech and the codes that are used to pr um, pr do all this. Um, a lot of people kind of push back on the idea that code itself could be racist, but there's a lot of assumptions and biases that get built into the platforms that we use that then kind of, that then predict and um, determine what it is that we're able to, to ask of the systems, what we're able to do and what we're, and how 
sometimes they're inflexible about around what might be needed for cultural um, um, differences. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you wouldn't think that uh, racism would be actually in the code, but I guess code reflects right. code reflects the the people who who created code. That's right, and um, you know, you know, I know you had Tara McPherson on um, back um, in October. Um, you know, her work has talked about you know how code rose in the 1960s alongside um, uh, Unix and code in certain kinds of coding platforms and. Um, and digital spaces arose at the very moment that we were seeing civil rights movements. That a lot of our society, she doesn't want, she never wanted to make it um, correlative, but she did raise the question. You know, how can we understand that these two um, moments might be intersecting and determining each other? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talked about with her is, um, you know, it's kind of self-evident that um, you know, moving away from the code itself, but. Um, a lot of these platforms allow you to be anonymous, and and uh, and therefore yeah. there there's no personal uh, blowback. There's no personal responsibility. You can be as hateful of, as you want. Well, I mean, there's there's an anonymity, and then there's moments where you become hyper visible. So there's consequences to certain people if they tweet certain things. I think Illinois is a great example of that, um, where you know you can you can you can have a position on Twitter, and if it. Um, um, Gets, gets enough circulation and is is deemed you know offensive enough for people. Um, you know we had a we had a colleague in American Indian Studies that, that was the unit I was in um, when I first joined um, Illinois from 2006 to 2015. Um, Steve Salida got unhired for tweets and critical of Israel. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, and and you uh, you were going to leave, you were going to resign, but they they I guess they found an accommodation for you. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. I, I mean, I, I I was looking for different options. Um, I did stop being in American Indian Studies um, because the the consequences of the institution um, really diminished what the program could be and do. A lot of faculty left to other institutions. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it's it, so it, so um, it was important, I think, to 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 acknowledge that the that the labor that went into building a program got undone kind of magnificently by the institution's decision. Um, and then it raised questions about, you know, what one puts one's labor to at institutions. Mm-hmm. And part of what I wanted to do in the shift was think it, see if there was any way to build any kind of conversation at the institution at Illinois around um, technology, if there was any way to keep engaging the, the university um, in ways that felt um, productive as opposed to, you know, constantly being in, in um, fighting mode with the, mm-hmm. with the community. You, you mentioned the slide episode uh, it illustrates hyper, you know, hyper visuality. Um, also, you know, the, the very hot debate about free speech on campus. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, the conservatives yeah. attack that idea, but, but also, you know, uh, on the other side as well. Um, and it's, in, it's interesting about what constitutes free speech. Um, you know, I think the um, slide case also indicates that there's certain speech that's deemed um, absolutely not allowed. Um, in the environment where everybody's claiming that they're allowing, that we have to allow, you know, right-wing and radical right-wing voices to have presence. So it sort of um, shows the, the um, discrepancy, the, the bias, the, the, the privilege that goes into always kind of pushing a right-wing agenda mm-hmm. um, at the same time that the, the right claims that it's the one that's being um, shut down. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that is? That, of course, you have experience at the University of Illinois. Where do you think that... that that debate is going uh, now. Is it uh, 
is it moving? Is kind of in stasis? Um, I think we're stuck in the both sides. Like, like somehow there's an equivalency that um, we need to have both sides represented constantly as if they're equal um, and as, as if they're both coming with the same, um, you know, agenda or good faith engagement. Um, we see this around um, at Illinois. There's um, discussion still about whether, you know, what to do with the, mas- the, the chief Illinois mascot that they retired in 2007. Um, and you, the, the university still hasn't replaced the mascot. Um, they formed a commission to give um, an uh, advisory committee to give um, uh, recommendations, but they um, seeded it with both um, American Indian faculty and then um, people who are um, white supremacist um, Cherokees who are, and by that I mean there's a long history of white uh, whites claiming to be Cherokee who are not Cherokee and using it to advance uh, white supremacist ideas. Um, they're equally on the panel to give advice to the university. Hmm. Uh, I want to pause there. I noticed in your Twitter feed you're uh, you're you're critical of Elizabeth Warren, and you say this is an example. Yeah. And, and there's a, a ongoing number of, of people who uh, are claiming by DNA tests that they that they're that mm-hmm. they're Cherokee. Yes. Um, and that is, of course, um, the Cherokee don't use DNA um, as enrollment um, at all. It, instead, it's through family connection, through Dawes histories, through there's many different ways to document Cherokee ancestry and Cherokee belonging. None of them are um, actually DNA. Um, DNA is, um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of um, folks working on this in indigenous studies, um, looking at the ways in which the rise of DNA has produced an idea of Indianness in that can be documented genetically, um, but, there, but there's so many flaws with that. Um, but, the, but the primary is that the Cherokee Nation itself, there's only three recognized by the federal government. The Cherokee Nations get to decide who their citizens are. It's not a matter of individuals claiming it based upon what, they're, what they might get from a DNA test. I think, uh, you know, some of the people uh, come forward and they're, they're um, I mean, it's, they're co-opting, right? But but it's mm-hmm. in a it's a matter of pride. It's hey, I'm a part of this uh, this great culture. Sure. Um, it, it, so sure. I don't know. That's kind of a positive. What what are the negatives? Well, the negatives again are that there's a lot of investments in family stories, and I think these come out of Indian territory, which becomes Oklahoma. Um, you know, with Elizabeth Warren's family, I think there's been some documentation by some of the Cherokee. Um, um, uh, people who work on ancestry who've shown that her family was actually part of the white settlers. Some of them actually killed Indians. Um, that there were reasons um, white settlers in, a, in Indian territory claimed to be Cherokee, and it's attached to a land dispossession um, when the Dawes Act happened, when the land rush happened, to try to get into the, the um, government um, parceling of allotments. Um, so that so when when we say that there's there's to, to call into question why people want to have pride in it um, is to call into question what their family's relationship to these to the history of colonialism might be. Mm. And again, I guess the key point is Cherokee Nation gets to gets to say who's Cherokee. I guess. Yes. Yeah, and they get lots of criticism for this too because there's been national controversies around um, how the Cherokee have handled um, um, freedmen um, descendants of um, um, uh, African-American descendants of, or African-Cherokee descendants of slaves um, that the Cherokee Nation owned. Um, and so, you know, it's not, these questions are vexed in Indian country. Um, they um, are absolutely racial um, at various moments um, and um, have lasting historical repercussions um, 
Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit more about that because that's that's a very interesting case and somewhat recent, right? That the Freedmen uh, Cherokees were disenfranchised. Understand? Yes. Yeah. In, in, um, in I mean, Cherokee I wrote about Nation. it in my first mm-hmm. book, um, just a little bit, just thinking about you know the the the. the we have a common sense understanding of what race is in the United States attached to um, how it is that we produce identities and belonging. Um, and there's a way that, um, you know, in American Indian nations um, disrupt that because of sovereignty and because of treaties, right? And this is why the Cherokee Nation has the right to determine who its citizens are. It has the right in that, in that iteration of its sovereignty to um, make um, racist decisions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in its... Um, in its internal dealings that the citizens itself can't push the nation to do the right thing, right? Um, and so this is the struggle around trying to deal with um, those common sense ideas of, and settler colonial ideas about what race and identity are, and then how those map into indigenous sovereignty um, and indigenous um, nations. Mm. Uh, you're talking about transitive empire? Yeah, very interesting book. Um, we'll talk about some of the themes there and, of course, about the talk as we go along. Let's take a break now. Sure. Uh, we are uh, talking with uh, Jody Bird, uh, who is a professor at uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She works on critical indigenous studies, queer indigenous studies, and critical technology studies. Um, we'll talk about this, uh, the video game Assassin's Creed Three: Liberation, how this uh, media illuminates complex dynamics of empire, settler colonialism, and indigenous dispossession. That's the title, that's the content of the talk. Talk about that following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Professor Jody Bird. Uh, she is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, an associate professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. Uh, she's giving the next uh, talk in the Tanner Talk series from College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Before we get into the, the, uh, the meat of your talk, uh, Jody Bird, just a couple more things on coronavirus. Uh, again, going to your um, Twitter feed, if people are interested, it's mm-hmm. at Arzavium. Is that how I pronounce it? Arzavium. Uh, Arzavium. Arzavium. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a meaning behind that? Um, uh, avium, sort of a play on um, Latin bird okay. um, and ars, arts, right? Okay. Um, I don't know if it, if it makes any sense, really, but that's what it is. Well, I, I should have known my Latin there, yes. Um, so uh, at, the, at your Twitter feed there, uh, you're talking about um, kind of the perils of teaching uh, video games, right? 
Um, sure, yeah. And you talked about you 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 apparently got mono from passing around a video controller, and and so with yeah. coronavirus, you asked the university, "Hey, can I have some hand sanitizer in my class?" Yeah, um, you know, and I think this is how you know. I think it's interesting because when um, the H one N one virus went around, they installed all the hand sanitizers around campus. There's still posters up in some of the bathrooms, you know, encouraging you know, um, people to be aware of what H1N1 is. And nothing had gotten updated as the news came out of China um, back in January. And so, um, you know, I had a a bottle of hand sanitizer in the classroom that was expired in 2017. So I tried to get some for my class. um, And, you know, I managed to get a couple bottles before the rush happened. But, um, yeah, ever since I did come down with mono and from uh, passing it around with students who, who had been diagnosed that semester, realizing just how almost impossible it is to, to really manage germs in a classroom setting, especially when you're doing something like a controller that you want to have hands-on for students. Um, part of, you know, I, I, I advocated um, to build a classroom for video game instruction at Illinois um, with the idea that students don't have the means always to purchase game systems. Some of them run $500. You know, if you get a, a gaming PC, you can be out thousands. Um, you, um, they, you know, Oculus Rift VR headsets cost um, hundreds of dollars. These are things that I mean, students can't be expected to have, and yet trying to figure out how to teach the content to them means trying to, you know, use in- institutional resources to give them access. Um, and all of that, you know, falls apart when we start to go to remote. Um, you know, I, I, I'm looking at a semester now of trying to teach a class about video game content um, with students who um, may not even have um, a good enough bandwidth or laptops to access the class remotely. Yeah, the, the, the difficulties there, right? You, you, um, you would, yeah. I guess the assumption is today technology is good enough. Well, you can, you can just do, do most things remotely, but. But even in an area like video games, uh, can't do that. Right. I mean, and then this is where you know, like, um, you know, trying to think about remote from home. I don't have the bandwidth even at my house to do a um, Twitch channel or feed where I could have my students watch me play um, certain games and talk to them about what they're seeing. I mean, there's lots of lots of um, um, platforms for some of this, but it requires uh, so much um, back end support um, and technology. That um, you know, in, in a crunch like this, where we're all in crisis, we just don't have um, resources to get it all up and running in, in the next you know week. Mm. Uh, so tell me about first before we get into Assassin's Creed Three and, and the, the meat of your talk. Uh, tell me about teaching video games. Uh, I guess from an outside view, people might say, "Oh, Professor Burden, or students are just they're just having fun." Yeah, um, I mean, I hope the students have fun in the class. I mean, video games are about fun and play. I mean, that's but it but it requires thinking. And what I do with my classes is have them think about what play is culturally, what video games are, both as technology, as um, platforms, as embodied experiences, what it, what they do narratively and story. There's so many debates about whether video games can even tell stories. Um, and then I teach a class in gender women's studies um, at the newer one that's looking at um, gender and race in video games. Um, some of these topics can get kind of heated. Um, I've, I've had moments where, you know, people, uh, my um, gender and gaming class um, hit um, the Kotaku and Review subreddit with a moment where people were, like, really deeply offended that I was going to be, you know, doing a social justice warrior um, take on video games. Um, Fox and Friends um, last year um, had someone on saying that my class was the number one 
most ridiculous class to be offered at a university. Um, I beat out a class at Northwestern called Unsettling Whiteness. Um, and I, I joked um, with my students to say, you know, I hope I'm unsettling whiteness in my classes as well. Um, but, um, yeah, it, thankfully, um, none of these things ever sort of emerged as um, ongoing, um, you know, uh, social media um, engagement. Um, I think uh, what I hope my students take from the class is that, one, I love video games, and two, I want to have critical thought about what they're producing and how it is that we're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's interaction with the culture wars here, isn't there? There, um, yeah. uh, and and there's a subculture that's um, uh, what I understand. Uh, you know, it's in this area, subculture that's pretty virulently misogynistic. It can be, and video games certainly. We, I just was teaching this, um, and my I had a group of students present on on these very questions about you know the, about masculinity and how it's um, um, functioning, both in its toxic forms, but um, you know, how the video games themselves kind of produce a certain idea of masculinity that's affecting both men and women. Uh, so tell me about Assassin's Creed Three Liberation. You you use this video game to explore uh, several uh, interesting ideas. Yes. So tell me, I'm not familiar, you know, I'm not a gamer. Uh, tell me about Assassin's Creed. Oh, Assassin's Creed is, it's, it's, an, it's at this point, I, I can't remember. There's like at least 15 games or iterations of it, including a collectible card game that you can play on your um your mobile phone. Um, there's so many, there's so much um, that's gone into it. It, it. It's almost impossible to summarize really briefly. So I, I like um, apologize in advance about the talk because I t- I do have to break it down at a point to try to give the the overarching kind of mythology that's produced the world of the game. Um, essentially, it's a series where it, it actually delves into some of the DNA questions. It's the the main premise is that uh, at least into the first three games is that you play a modern um, a uh, uh, man named Desmond Miles, whose DNA has the memories of his ancestors. So he's, there's a Persian assassin, um, an Italian assassin, and um, in the third game, um, a Mohawk assassin. And he, and so in his present day world, he's using um, uh, technology to hack into his DNA so that he can access his memories in order to gain the skills necessary to fight off. Uh, an evil sort of um, um, deep state version of um, Templars who are out to corporately destroy the world. Uh, so yeah, that's fascinating. So I can see how uh, <laughs> once you've explained this, I can see how this gets into uh, uh, empire colonialism, uh, indigeneity. Yeah. So so expand yeah. on that for me. Well, so the, the so the Mohawk, um, the character you play in the past is um, a, a character named um, Radha Gaden. Um, which is the Mo- his Mohawk name, but the, uh, but early on um, his uh, mentor decides that it's too hard to pronounce, so he's given the name Connor. Um, and then the game basically produces an idea of of um, the Mohawk um, that is um, somehow um, the, I, so for Connor, his entire um, function in the game is to make sure the American Revolution happens successfully. So there's things, there's missions where you're running around Boston trying to collect all of Benjamin Franklin's almanac pages from rooftops. Um, you know, the, the, the Boston Tea Party makes an appearance, um, and apparently the only Indian that would, or any sign of Indianness in the Boston Tea Party is you, the character, you know, showing up to make sure that, you know, the, the, the tea gets dumped overboard. There's, it, it, it's really fascinating how 
the game, it has a, a disclaimer. Assassin's Creed Ubisoft um, puts up a disclaimer saying that a, a, te- a multicultural team of various fa- religions and faiths put the, put the game together. Um, in more recent versions of the game that have come out, like um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, um, they add gender um, and um, sexuality to that list. Um, they try to be very multicultural in it, but uh, but it, what they produce is, a, is I think, helps um, understand all those ideas about race that I said are common sense for the United States. So there's, it's interesting that even though Desmond Miles in the future, in the present has a Mohawk ancestor, he never once in any part of the game ever identified as indigenous. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of critics actually read him as white, which isn't actually, I mean, it, it, it starts to um, really break down um, under, around these understandings about DNA ancestry, cultural identity. Um, so I use the game to, uh, to unpack some of that. But the other thing that's really interesting about it um, and that, that my talk um, engages is the second game that came out on the, on the PSP, which was um, at the time the handheld companion to the PlayStation 3. Um, and that version, is, it's set in the same time period. Um, and in it, you, it was the, it, you play an, a, a black Creole woman assassin in New Orleans. Um, and so I was I was interested in looking at the two games t- together to understand how indigenous how in, um, um, indigeneity North American indigeneity is is um, being constructed in re- and, in relationship to um, um, blackness in the South. Mm. Uh, and it's some I, I think that's an area that at least in popular conception we don't think about a whole lot. What do you, what the, the, do that, you, that intersection, uh, yeah, you know, uh, African right. Americans and, and American Indians. Yeah, so that this is where being Chickasaw really is, you know, the core of what um, helps me think about um, questions. Um, you know, I, my great great granduncle um, was governor of the Chickasaw Nation in the 1890s. He um, was part of a, uh, a political party called the Pullbacks, who were trying very hard to fight against allotment. Um, at the very moment, the United States government was moving towards that. Um, and um, what, but what's really complicated in this history is that um, he's from a family. Um, he was three months old when removal happened. So the Chickasaw were originally in what's now Mississippi. Um, and, um, you know, we got removed along with the Cherokee and other tribes. Um, it, it, our, our own removal was, you know, involving treaty, our own treaties and things like and all of that. But he was three months old. Um, when he, when the, his, when our when our family was removed and had to relocate to Indian territory, um, but he was in a family that um, was slave owning. So some of the family took at least 130 slaves with them um, into Indian territory to help rebuild the Chickasaw Nation and the new lands that we were supposedly, you know, going to be given. So that so yeah. that history for me drives home the responsibility I have to actually think about what what. Chickasawness and indigeneity and Southern indigeneity especially means in relationship to enslavement and, um, and, and um, you know, um, anti-blackness as it's emerged in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to st- delve into that, but start with, with you personally. You uh, uh, Do you go back to Chickasaw Nation? Um, I have. I actually um, and, um, go down for festival when I can. Um, you know, it's hard to know now with travel. Um, but I, uh, when Transit came out, I actually took my book down to the Chickasaw Festival and had a stall up to, you know, to sort of, you know, have it there for folks to see and, um, 
you know, I wasn't actually expecting anybody to buy. I have, I'll be honest, it's it's not an easy read. I um, do critical theory. Um, you know, I'm engaging Derrida and Deleuze, and it's I'm, I'm I, I I always feel like I, I think it was important work to do at that level, but it's it's not ever a fun read for people. Um, and the responses I got were just incredible. Where you know, um, I was next to people who were self-publishing. I was next to Linda Hogan, who was a um, you know, um, our, uh, the the most amazing Chickasaw novelist and poet. Um, she was at one point the the poet laureate for the Chickasaw Nation, and I'm, I, I was just sort of like I was star starstruck to be sitting next to her, um, and then to see you know folks from the community come through and Ada. And what I got was a uh, you know people would buy it um, and they would say it has an ISBN. That was the first thing they pointed out, and the second thing they pointed out was that they they said, I know I may not be able to understand and read. But we, I appreciate, and we appreciate that you're um, writing this um, um, and 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 um, speaking up um, from from an indi- from a Chickasaw perspective mm. in the academy. Yeah. So it was. I was really. It, it, I was really relieved. I mean, it it it's it's hard to go back to community and under and and and, and expect what they um, uh, and to anticipate what they might think. And you know, I wanted the book to to do certain work, and I wanted it to be you know intellectual, and I. Because I believe that Indigenous folks are intellectuals, that we have a deep um, um, philosophies, um, deep um, perspectives on understanding colonialism, and that you know we have you know really um, sophisticated ways of, of, of parsing American history. Mm. Uh, I guess, and the fact that your grandfather was a prominent figure in the Chickasaw um, Nation. Well, right? yeah, that's, I did. Have, <laughs> he was controversial, too. I mean, and controversial, okay. He's a firebrand. I had someone show up who actually, he he, he showed uh, somebody who came from the the, the progressive party, the other, the pullback, so it was the pullbacks and the progressives. So someone who's, um, who, whose um, own relative was part of the progressive party, I mean, at one point in the stories, um, his ancestor and my great-great-granduncle um, had a standoff at the Chickasaw Capitol at gunpoint so he comes over to my table to let me know that, you know, to let me know that he knew who I was and, you know, to just say basically <laughs> our, 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 our relatives, our ancestors would have been at odds. And isn't it funny that we're now sitting next to each other at this arts festival? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite, that's quite the deal. And then I had, had someone come right after him to say, I just want you to know um, you know, the, the, the last name of it was Sam Paul is the, is the, is the, um, the historical figure. And, and somebody came up right after he visited the table to say, I just want you to know that my great grandfather voted with the last vote to put your great, great uncle into office. And we hate the Pauls. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to see the sort of, you know, it was all in good fun. It wasn't literal. I want to be clear, um, but it, but it was really you know it was really nice to see the kind of historical resonances um, and experience those those stories. Uh, yeah, the, the resonances that, that's true. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll have more with uh, Jody Bird, uh, who is associate professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. We'll talk more about this following this break.
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Uh, I'm talking this hour with Jody Bird. She's a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma and associate professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, so this is very interesting uh, using a video game to talk about these issues, Professor Bird, um, especially first-person player uh, games, right? Because you're, the player is putting themselves in the, in the shoes and the persona of, of a different person, right? And so... I, I don't know whether that promotes empathy for, you know, various uh, different races, ethnicities and, 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 you know, different experiences or not. Uh, that's one of the arguments that some people have made about video games, but I and work by Lisa Nakamura and others have really kind of questioned what the limits of empathy actually are, especially, again, when the, it's sometimes and often designed by um, folks who don't always uh, who, who, who imagine that this might be a way to get to empathy, but kind of construct in the process um, stereotypes about groups of people. I mean, Assassin's Creed 3 is not, has nothing historically accurate about the Mohawk. Um, in the game, you end up, the Mohawks end up siding with the American colonists, when in reality they sided with the British. Um, you know, I think there's work by Audra Simpson that I point to in, in her book, Mohawk Interruptus, to, to point out that the reason that the, the Mohawk um, are so... Um, their sovereignty is, is existing on the borders between the U.S. and Canada is exactly tied to this um, historical moment Assassin's Creed um, presents, but um, the game has no ability to really delve into any part of that history in any meaningful way. Mm. Um, you know, I've heard from people who served as cultural, uh, or, you know, conversations or, and, and maybe rumors are just sort of reflections on what um, went into from, from Mohawk community in, in um, response to the game emerging to say that the struggle was mostly just to try to keep the game designers from from appropriating the culture and putting um, things that they shouldn't into the game. And so, you know, choosing which fights to, to, to have in terms of, of representation um, and what makes it in and what doesn't make it in. What uh, What's your suggestion? What, what's your idea about what fights to have? What, uh, what, what is most important? Oh, I, you know, I think uh, this is where video games get to be really interesting. They're almost, I mean, they're almost um, laughably colonialist. Um, and this is what I tell my students. I mean, the starting point of, of any conversation about video games is that you're essentially Columbus in almost every game you play, where you enter a new world and you run around learning about it, and, and at the same time you kill a bunch of people. Um, so I, I always talk about it as kind of this um, discovery accumulation um, this, you gain power by the by the materials you collect. Um, it's almost all colonialism and capitalism. Um, so so and and to say that isn't actually to to really say anything super insightful about games. It's just a given. Um, from what um, from there though, the question is, how do the games ask us to think about our relationship to um, space, to um, physicality, to um, to embodiment on the screen or in relationship to the play? Are there ways to actually disrupt um, what has been the norm of video games to see if there's other ways that they might allow us to, um, to imagine differently or play differently? And there have been attempts. There's a, there's a beautiful game um, by an Inupiat community um, in Alaska called Never Alone that uses the video game format to, to tell a really old traditional story. Um, and in it kind of breaks the competitive aspects of gaming um, and um, asks you to, you know, it sets it up um, where you can play um, co- cooperatively two people at the same time. And in fact, it's best experienced with two people where you work together to solve the puzzles. But even that game can't quite get outside of the, um, 
the terra nullius, the idea that everything is um, that you're experiencing is new and empty. You, you're constantly kind of going into terra incognita, unknown space, and having to figure out what what lies in front of you. Um, it, even as the the, the game, the, the the never alone game, is trying to tell you that you know the land and the spirit is is in relationship and kinship with you and helping you. Um, it, it doesn't quite. It's not quite able to use the the mechanics of the game to quite give you that sense of of being familiar with the space. What do you, uh, what journey do you hope your students take during during a class? They come in with some, I'm I'm sure, uh, a varied you know number of, of preconceptions. Where do you hope to take them through through teaching these um, video well, games? In my- my just my 200 level English class. Um, I, I try to. I, I'm mostly just trying to give them tools to to really think and be critical about the games they're playing. To really start to unpack and and uh, you know because um, they come in having. I mean, my students are incredibly sophisticated with their knowledge of video games. I mean, they I, 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 they outstrip me and and um, absolutely. And um, so I'm always kind of feeling a little bit behind them in terms of what is the most. Um, um, press, like what is the most popular pressing kinds of questions that they're engaging in their own circles. Um, but what I hope I give them is just um, ways to um, you know, think about what the games are producing, how it is that they relate to them, um, to really give them um, you know, questions that um, help them think about the design of the game. Um, I've had students tell me, you know, they, get, they, they take the class and then they apply for internships. We have a game studio in Champaign called Volition. Um, Volition's put out um, a number of games, including Saints Row, um, and some of them go and interview, and they, when they get asked about, you know, their, 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 what kind of training they had, you know, they're all, a lot of them are in computer science, but when they point out they've had a class in, in the English department on video game studies, you know, the, they, they get, they, they get um, a, a good response back from the people interviewing them to say that they actually wanted, they want to have this kind of critical engagement to think about what is being translated onto the screen um, for for players, um, because the, the, of course the industry itself wants to innovate. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not always looking for ways to to reimagine what video games can do. Um, and um, I think I, I think there's some parts of it that um, are um, you know that what I hope my students take is a way to um, to know what games have done in terms of the Columbusine aspects of them, and to maybe be able to think about. Um, alternative um, games or um, structures that we might imagine in the future. We have about five or six minutes left in the conversation. By the way, we're talking with Jody Bird, who's a, a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, an associate professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She'll be giving a remote uh, talk in the Tanner Talk series uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Uh, that'll be uh, streamed into uh, here at uh, USU campus and uh, various regional campuses across the state. Uh, before we end the conversation, uh, I do want to come back to this very important idea that we treated earlier in the hour of, you know, what makes you indigenous or for all of us, what makes us mm. us, you know, is it DNA? Is mm-hmm. it family heritage? Uh, it, it, you know, what is it? And in your in your book, I was reading a review of your, your book, uh, uh, what's the title of it again? Um, Trans of Empire. Trans of Empire. Um, very interesting idea of um, are, are American Indians um, are they viewed as a uh, separate ethnicity, or are they viewed as you know separate nations? And that's a very critical 
question? In, in, in some ways, both. Um, I mean, but the primary way of understanding indigenous nations is as actual nations, right? Each, each of the, of the um, nations in the United States have their own treaties, their own um, you know, languages, their own cultures, their own lands, their own relationships. Um, in the, we are assumed to be um, that we belong to the United States because of U.S. colonialism, because of the Marshall Trilogy, the idea that we're domestic dependent nations. These, these, these were um, contested ideas that evolved over time, um, and then there was a way in which it was by the 20th century and the assumption that you know, the Indian Wars were technically over, that we'd somehow been flattened into another racial group that could be incorporated into the United States. In, the, in transit, I, sort, I argue how that is actually the fulfillment of colonialism, because that, um, transfer, that transformation of us from sovereign nations into racial groups um, um, incorporates us into the, the final piece of, the, of um, solidifying U.S. control over our lands and, and identities and, and um, histories. By the way, we have an email from Steve. I want to get this in before we close. Uh, Steve says, The anecdote Professor Bird related about her own content relationship with a descendant of her grandfather's tribal rival brings to mind a similar incident in my own family and is a reminder of the universality of human tribal affinities and rivalries. Ethnically, my family and Professor Bird's family are pretty distant. I'm descended from Highland Scots, and as you probably know, Scots clans are famously fractious and rivalrous. One of the most notorious and murderous rivalries is between the Campbells and the McDonald's. We happen to be McDonald's, and when one of my brothers died some years back at the funeral, my other brother was accompanied by his then-girlfriend Jennifer Campbell. A Campbell? There was much mock horror among my cousins at the thought, even though the McDonald-Campbell feud was centuries back. The emphasis, of course, is on mock. Jennifer is a lovely woman, and we love her deeply. That's an interesting anecdote, <laughs> paralleling yeah. a little bit of your own there. <laughs> I, I, absolutely, and it's lovely to hear stories. I mean, this is, I, 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 I could try to connect this, like, you know, I, I think the thing that's fascinating in video games is that um, as much as people dismiss them as telling stories, what everybody goes to them is for stories. And, you know, one of the things that, um, I, in, even though it seems odd that I, as an American Indian Studies scholar, um, would want to turn to video games, in part I do that because of my deep commitment to story and what it does in relationship to how we understand and navigate the world. The only major difference I would say um, that is important to hold on to around what um, I was saying with the, with the Chickasaw story is that, that was a, those were political parties in a nation um, they were fighting over, like, the, the progressives were um, supporting allotment. They thought, saw this as the future of the nation, and they ultimately went out. The pullbacks were part of the traditionals who were trying to prevent and hold land in common and to keep the Chickasaw Nation um, and, and, and um, its kinship um, responsibilities intact through um, communal land holdings. So the, so the scales of the fight were, were absolutely down to what is the future of our nation going to be. Hmm. I uh, just have about a little minute left, uh, Professor Bird. What uh, what's your takeaway? What, what do you hope people take away from your your talk, for example? Um, just to, I, I, the takeaway, um, I guess, would be to really understand as we're doing this shift to remote, um, and we're thinking about social distancing and starting to you know use things like video games, um, uh, online technologies as a way to both connect to people, to also think about how it is that they are producing. Um, and, and responsible for some of the um, deep disconnects that continue to affect um, how it is that we're relating to each other. I think, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about with the coronavirus 
Um, as an American Indian, having, you know, we've seen the waves of diseases. A lot of people talk about um, what Indigenous peoples have been through as an apocalypse already. We have, you know, deep understandings of what um, ravaging diseases do. On the flip side, I think the planet is really trying to ask us to come into accountability with each other to really think about our kinship and um, responsibilities if we have any hope of surviving um, and, and um, extending as, as humans on this planet. Jody Bird is a associate professor of English and Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, thanks so much for the conversation. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. That spaghetti packs a punch, and it has nothing to do with the spices. You've heard about studies showing the impact of consistent family meals on teen behavior. The more often they eat dinner with their families, the less likely teens are to use drugs, alcohol, or engage in other risky behavior. Family dinners at least five times per week are also tied to higher grades, self-esteem, and resilience in youth. Why? Is it the homemade pasta? The garden-fresh tomatoes? Nope, it's you. More specifically, it's your interest, your attention, your willingness to listen, as well as share experiences and expectations. David Watkins, Prevention Coordinator for the Bear River Health Department, explains. The research on that shows that um, as families sit down around a table, they're just able to connect and bond together. Um, It really doesn't matter how good the food is. Um, It's really just the conversation and the interaction that's going on with them that is is creating a bond not only to their siblings, but to their parents and to the ideals that their parents have. Person-to-person connection is important and comes naturally as we align schedules and sit eye-to-eye around a table. But it isn't just bonding that shows up in the research. In fact, bonding is more of a gateway. It's also the communication of boundaries that carry protective power. Watkins sees this in his preventative efforts with Parents Empowered, a media and education campaign funded by the Utah legislature designed to prevent and reduce underage drinking in the state. Parents Empowered in Utah shows that it's kind of that expectation, the rules, the boundaries that the parents are setting, and that might be conveyed you know, during a family dinner. I'm bonding with my kids and my kids are bonding with me. Um, But then it's that rule and that expectation for like no underage drinking is what's keeping kids from drinking. For calendars riddled with soccer games and band concerts, food has the power to pull us in where conversation can flow. Discussion could shift from the day's happenings to favorite vacations or current events. Within the exchange, Listening to each other increases our understanding, and sharing our observations establishes a frame of reference for values. Within this framework, Parents Empowered would also encourage us to set clear rules and consequences for underage drinking and follow up often. Family dinner is just one of many opportunities for daily positive interactions that build resilience, but it is the most delicious. So what's for dinner tonight? How about some bonding and boundaries? This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter.